Well, good morning. It's good to be with everyone here at Gospel of Grace. I want to welcome all of you and give a welcome to those who are tuning in online. Oh, there's Will. We'll have to update that. By the time Will's 30, that'll be updated. <laughs> Will, you'll have a whole career and a family, and that'll still be up there. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for the lovely worship and the lovely prayer, Eric, and what a great Sunday school we had together, robust discussion, and that was a lot of fun here today at Gospel of Grace. Bob was showing us, if he, or excuse me, Acts chapter 20, we we're talking about the definition of the church and how the elders of the church should shepherd the people of God and to protect them, and it ties in very nicely with what we're talking about here today. Notice my attempt to be having more clever titles, The Good Shepherd is Hiring, I say that because as you and I have been out in our daily lives, I'm sure many of you have seen the now hiring signs that are out there. And I thought how fitting that is really for our message today because Jesus Christ, when this passage was spoken by him and written by Matthew, he was really hiring servants who would be willing to go out into the harvest to save souls. Now today you and I are going to witness Jesus being using two analogies. The first is that of the shepherd. Israel had been pillaged by wayward shepherds. Jesus was the good shepherd. But the second analogy ties into that is Christ desires that there would be under shepherds or fellow workers that would go out into the world and be part of the harvest to bring souls in. And so we're really going to be confronted with a couple of questions from this passage. Number one, are we those who are willing to pray for the lost? be willing to pray to the Heavenly Father that he would send out workers into the harvest? And second, would we be those who are willing to have the gospel upon our lips so that as we go out into the world, others may hear of the greatness of the Good Shepherd and in so doing have everlasting life? I think that's really the challenge in this passage. Now, I want to begin here in Matthew 9.35, and I want to begin by mentioning that we have another summary section here in Matthew 9, 35 to 38, we have a summary that bridges the chapters 5 through 9, which is all about Jesus' Galilean ministry, with what we're going to see coming up in chapter 10, which is all about missions, sending out the disciples to proclaim the gospel. And so we are in a transition section here. I just wanted you to know that. So as we pick it up here in verse 35, Jesus is in Galilee. And it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, I'm going to pull up my pointer. I want you to first notice that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages. Implied there is he was going through the cities and the villages of Galilee. Now, that is actually a fulfillment of very important prophecy that we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And I want you to see how this was fulfilled in Christ. Not so says Eric Dauma, but so says the Apostle Matthew, who was inspired by the Spirit. So turn your Bibles, if you will, do a little review. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. And as you turn there, kind of keep a little marker there, because we'll be turning back to Matthew 4 at the end of the slide as well. Matthew four fifteen through 16. So remember, Jesus begins his messianic ministry in the area of Galilee. 
And that's why Matthew saw this as a fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Notice it says, verses 15 through 16 of Matthew 4, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Let me explain the original backdrop to that. You remember when Isaiah would have written Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, he was promising that the Israelites were going to head towards destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. That's what chapter 8 of Isaiah is about. And so this is actually a section of comfort because the idea is when the enemies of God would come down on Israel, they would come from the north. So who do you think were the first to experience the wrath of the Assyrian army? The people who lived in Galilee. But the promise in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 that we just read from Matthew 4 was that even though they were the first to experience the darkness of the Assyrian destruction, they would be the first to see the messianic light that would dawn on them in the cities of Galilee and their villages. And dear ones, that's exactly what we've seen in Matthew's chapter 4 through 9. That yes, Jesus Christ was going, the light of God himself was going through these cities and their villages. Now, what was he doing? What was he doing to shine the light? Well, notice he was teaching, and part of the teaching was his proclamation, and he was healing. And I want you to see that the teaching obviously precedes the healing for a reason. I think Matthew puts it in that order because the teaching and the preaching of the gospel is always primary, since if one believes in what Christ preaches, they get the ultimate healing. Not just temporary relief here and now of symptoms, but the absolute assurance of everlasting life because of the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice in Jesus' teaching, it says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Bob and I have talked a lot about the gospel, how it is indeed about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's about who he is and what he has done and, of course, what he's going to do. So the gospel is the good news about the person and the work of Christ. Now, notice it talks about Jesus as proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That means that Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom. So Jesus didn't bring the kingdom at his first advent, but he's going to at his second advent. And the idea is if you will believe the gospel, you are registered as a citizen of that coming kingdom. So the gospel of the kingdom is about believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that when Jesus Christ returns, you are a partaker of the glorious kingdom rather than his wrath. Now, one thing I want to mention is in the 19th into the 20th century, there were some hyper-dispensationalists who would try to claim there was a distinction to be made between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. Uh, Some of the men that taught this were like Les Felbeck, Uh, Bob has rebuked him in some CIC writings. Another one was a man named Bollinger in the 19th century. And the idea was that the gospel of the kingdom, well, that's for the Jews, and the gospel of grace, that's for the church. That's nonsense. There's only one gospel, and it's about the person and work of Christ. And it's a gracious gospel, and if you believe it, you'll end up in the kingdom. They are synonymous. And if you want more uh, discussion or you want to talk about or read more about that, Bob DeWay wrote a great CIC article. If you put in the search engine in Google, Les Feldick, a hyper-dispensationalism, Bob's CIC article will come up on that. You can read more about it. But notice here, 
the proof that indeed Jesus is this Messiah is also seen in the fact that he does the healing. Remember in Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, the prediction is, is that in the Messianic age, the deaf would hear, the blind would see, the lame would leap like a deer. Those are the types of miracles Jesus did. Why? Because he was authenticating that indeed he was the Messiah. Notice also that he healed not just some of their diseases or some of their sicknesses, it was every kind. Why? Because in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, you have the God-man. Yes, he's truly a man, but he's also truly God, who has all power. He is the omnipotent God who can handle any threat that we face. He can do any type of healing. Now, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 this time. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And the reason I want you to see that is you're going to see that that is identical almost to what is stated here by Matthew in Matthew 9.35. And so what I'm going to be showing you is an inclusio. And I know many of you woke up today, you thought, yes, it's almost Thanksgiving. It's the year 2023, November 19th. I need to see a good inclusio. Well, today you're going to see one. Remember, an inclusio is where you have a section of Scripture that is bracketed at the beginning and the end by the identical theme or even sometimes uh, phraseology. And that's what we have, and I want you to see it so you can understand Matthew's point. Matthew 4.23, I hope you've turned there. Notice what it says. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Well, that sounds familiar. Well, that's because it's almost identical to what we have on the screen here. What's the point? The point is from that section, Matthew chapter 4 all the way to Matthew chapter 9, the focus by Matthew is on the Galilean ministry, that the light of the Messianic age indeed dawned in Galilee just as Isaiah 9 said. When we come to chapter 10, the focus and the transition will be the sending out of the disciples into the mission field. Now, as we pick it up here in Matthew 9.36, we see the compassion that Jesus had for the average Israelite. Why? Because he knew that they were indeed lost without a true shepherd. It's a seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the first thing I want you to note is that Matthew records Jesus seeing the people. And that's a good translation. I would render it a little differently. The term aklus there can be rendered crowd or think of masses. And it's important here, I think, why? Because Jesus seeing the masses, he felt compassion on them. One of the reasons I mention that is today as you look out the window or you watch TV and you see the news, I think it's very obvious that the leadership around the world whether it's here in the United States or abroad, it doesn't care much about the masses. They don't have compassion upon the masses. The leadership has contempt upon the masses. And the reason I mention this is not so that you and I would try to build some utopia here now, but that I would wet your whistle, prime the pump, get you excited, however you want to say it, about the coming rule of Christ. Because one day the good shepherd is going to be the ruler on the earth. And he's going to have compassion. That's how he's going to rule. Oh, what a day that will be. Now, notice here this term compassion. It really has to do with this idea that Jesus had a deep heart felt empathy and sympathy for the people of God. Why? Well, notice where he explains why. Notice the because. That's a haughty clause. 
It's explanatory. Why did he have compassion on them? Well, it's because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the term distress there, skulo and dispirited, ripto, it is, as uh, R.T. France, the great scholar of the book of Matthew said, he says, quote, it has to do with oppression, perhaps exhaustion, or even lack of direction. But then he goes on to say probably all of these things together. Why? Why were they dispirited? Why were they crushed? Why were they under such oppression? I want you to think about the situation the average Israelite was in when Matthew recorded these things or when Jesus spoke what we read about here. Think about the average Israelite was living in a land under Roman domination. They were absolutely humiliated in the fact that their enemies ruled over them. And what's more is all of you know, if you know your theology, that the law of Moses is impossible for a sinner to keep. That's what you learn about in Romans chapter 3. So the people of Israel couldn't abide by the Mosaic law. They couldn't do it. And yet the leadership of Israel, their shepherds, just pounded on them with more regulations. Do more, try harder. Here's a Talmud. And so if the law was difficult enough, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees didn't lighten the load. They just pounded on the people all the more. So they were subjugated, they were oppressed, and they were like sheep, literally, without a shepherd. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible, when the Bible describes humanity, it does not use some cunning animal like the fox or even the coyote or something like that, but it uses what? Sheep. Why? Because sheep without the shepherd are prone to go astray. What does the shepherd primarily give to the sheep? Two things, direction and protection. And to the church, both have to do with keeping the flock within the doctrines of the faith, both doctrine and deed. Well, the leadership of Israel was responsible for the same. And yet they also had other obligations. They had to protect the nation. But yet... The people didn't have that kind of shepherd. Why? Because the leadership was apostate. And so that's why we see in the book of Matthew, Matthew 10, 6, Matthew 15, 24, Jesus says that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He was going to be the great shepherd that none of the leaders ever were. Brothers and sisters, throughout the history of Israel, Israel has been led astray by false shepherds. Jesus Christ comes on the scene as the good shepherd. The one who's going to protect and direct the flock as God wanted them to be. Now, notice here as we come to our final verses, 37 and 38, Jesus explains now the need for workers, under shepherds you might think of them as, that would go out into the harvest to save souls, to find the lost sheep. Matthew 9, 37 through 38, it says, Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, notice, first of all, that it says when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is a big problem. You see, the harvest in the Bible, in the Old Testament, has to do with both the harvest of those who are damned but also it has to do with the harvest of those who are saved. Now, which do we know is being referred to here? Well, I think we know 
It's the harvest of the saved. Why? Because one verse earlier, Jesus had compassion on them. And so that tips you off that the harvest is that of the saved, not the damned. But the problem is, is that the harvest is plentiful, but there's only a few workers. In fact, if this was ever an understatement, uh, if there was ever an understatement by Jesus, I think we have one here. Why? Because as Jesus said this, he was the only worker. You had him and John the Baptist, that was it. There needs to be more workers. And that's going to be the focus as we transition into Matthew chapter 10. The more workers are the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. And therefore, if there's few workers, what does he say we ought to do? Verse 38, he says, Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The term beseech there, deomai, means to beg. To, to beg the Lord, and the implication is by prayer, that he would send out more workers into the harvest so that more people would hear the gospel, that the Holy Spirit would regenerate them, enabling them to believe the gospel, and that they would be saved, and at the end of the eschatological age, that they would be harvested into the kingdom of Christ. That's what's being referred to here. Notice also that you see this phrase, the Lord of the harvest. What I'll show you in our application is there's going to be a great eschatological harvest in which you have the unbelievers are going to be harvested unto damnation. And again, you're going to have believers that are harvested unto salvation. But it's the Lord who is sovereign. This isn't the man's, a man-made harvest. This is the Lord's harvest. It's his doing. Those whom are saved are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. It is his harvest. And dear brothers and sisters, what you and I are to be about is to be those who would pray that God would send workers into the harvest. You and I are to be those who want to be workers in the harvest, equipped with boldness and the gospel upon our lips so that other people can come into contact with the good shepherd. And in so doing, they would have everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, now, let's come to some applications. I have two of them here for you this morning. Number one, we must know that Jesus is the good shepherd alluded to in the Old Testament who lays his life down for the flock. I want to show you a great contrast between the wicked shepherds of Israel and the good shepherd, the Messiah, who comes on the scene of history. The result of seeing that should move everyone to say, I'm going to trust in Jesus. He's exactly what the Old Testament had foretold the need of. Number two, we should pray for and desire to be fellow workers who are sent out into God's harvest. One point that Bob was making today, it's very important that we realize this going out into the harvest does not mean, as the post-millennialists claim, that our job as Christians is to take a dominion over different political entities. Now, as I say that, I'm not claiming that the world wouldn't be better to live in if you had more godly people in areas of authority. That's not my claim. My claim is that's not the mission. The mission of the church isn't to make the world a better place to live in, but it's like you and I are behind enemy lines. And before the wrath of God comes, our job is to save as many souls as possible. That's the idea. Not to Christianize the planet, 
but to save souls that God has chosen. That's the idea that we have given to us in the scripture. So let's begin with number one. I want to begin by showing the importance of the shepherds in Israel. And I think the imagery of the shepherd and the sheep is something that the average Israelite would have readily seen. But I think even we, I'm not a farmer by any means. I don't know much about animals. But I think we all know that sheep do goofy things and they get in a lot of trouble if they don't have a shepherd. And so that imagery is common enough to even us that we understand the point. Notice what happens here in Numbers 27, 16 through 18. God wants there to be a shepherd who's going to take over after Moses to lead the flock. Listen to what it says. It says, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Now, the first thing I want to point out is, notice it says, appoint a man over the congregation. And, of course, we know this is going to be fulfilled if you look at verse 18 in Joshua. What I'm going to claim to you, though, is this Joshua is also a foreshadowing of the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Well, think about the replacement of the prophet like Moses. Remember, Moses prophesied there would be a replacement, a prophet like him in Deuteronomy 18, 15. And he says, if you won't listen to him, it will be required of you. Well, according to Matthew chapter 17 in the Mount of Transfiguration, that prophet who was the replacement of Moses was the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In the same way, the ultimate man is going to be the ultimate shepherd over Israel is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the second section in blue. It says, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep who have no shepherd. Again, what happens to the sheep who have no shepherd? They have no direction and they have no protection. What do I mean by direction? Sheep need to go one way, not the other. And when we look at the nation of Israel, what the leadership had to do was steer the people towards faith in Yahweh and to serve Yahweh to trust him and obey him, not to go after false idols, Moloch, Baal, and the false gods. What about the protection? Well, the primary role, and remember the shepherds here are also political leaders. They had to protect the flock militarily. That meant they had to be concerned with the material well-being of the nation, not just themselves. So what a contrast that that is with leadership today, who are often concerned about their own self-aggrandizement rather than the well-being of the nation. Well, the same thing was happening to the wicked shepherds in Israel. Now, notice in bold, who was the shepherd going to be? It was going to be Joshua. Joshua's name is the same as Jesus. It's Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. And so, yes, it was Joshua, the son of Nun, who brought the people into the promised land. But what I would say to you is that, in some sense, is a foreshadowing of the greater Joshua who's going to bring the people of God into the greater promised land. Why? Because he's going to be the ultimate shepherd that no one could be. So, yes, this is literally fulfilled in Joshua, but it's also a beautiful foreshadowing of the greater Joshua, Jesus of Nazareth, who will be the ultimate shepherd. Dear ones, Israel's leaders really let them down 
time and time again. And when you go through the scriptures, read Psalm 78, for example, before you go to bed, you will see that the shepherds of Israel were their political leaders. Yes, the priests would have been involved, elders would have been involved, but primarily it was the leadership of Israel that was to protect them militarily. Now, do we have that in the church? No, because Israel was a nation. We don't have a nation uh, as the church. We're not a political entity. But I want you to see, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel 34. And Bob, he and I do not compare notes during the week on what we're going to say typically, but he was in Ezekiel as well today. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 34, 1 through 2. Please turn your Bibles there. And I'm going to show you what the wicked shepherds did. And we're going to contrast that with what the good shepherd will do. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 2. Notice it says, Ezekiel chapter 34, 1 through 2, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? Now, what does it mean that they fed themselves and they didn't feed the flock? What that meant was that the leadership of Israel, whether it was King Ahaz or Manasseh or whatever it may be, these were men who were more concerned about self-enrichment, making themselves wealthy rather than the well-being of the nation. That was the implication. Think about today in the United States. And again, in the United States, we do not have a theocracy. I'm not claiming we have a covenant with God. We do not. We're just a pagan nation. But I want you to, again, wet your whistle for the coming of Christ's reign. What do we have today in America? What are the wealthiest counties in the entirety of the United States? They're the the counties that surround Washington, D.C. Why? Because the shepherds are more concerned about their own wealth enhancement than they are the security of the nation. And it's the way it is in a fallen and pagan world. But when the Lord Jesus comes... And he reigns and rules upon the earth. You're going to have a true shepherd, the shepherd who really takes care of his people. That's a great contrast. Now, notice here in Ezekiel 34, 5, it says they, that would be Israel, they were scattered for a lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Notice the imagery of being scattered as sheep. The term scattered is used twice there. What does it mean that they were scattered? It means that they were pillaged by the surrounding nations and their armies. Now, why would that happen? It's a theological or a doctrinal issue. The primary problem with the wicked shepherds is that they should have trusted in Yahweh, but they did not. Remember, if you're a note taker, jot this down, write down Deuteronomy 27 and 28, because there at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, God gave promises and he gave curses. And the promise to the people is that if they would trust in Yahweh, and if you trust, you obey, they go hand in hand. If you will trust and obey in Yahweh, he is going to give you a bumper crop, and he's going to protect you militarily from your enemies. You won't be scattered. But if you go into idolatry, what did God promise? You're not going to get a bumper crop. You're going to get famine. And he would scatter them amongst the nations, hand them over, to foreign militaries. Brothers and sisters, what we have to see here is the primary problem with the false shepherds of Israel was a doctrinal one. They led the people away from Yahweh, from away from faith alone, and they brought them to Molech. 
They brought them to Baal. They brought them to various Amorite gods, Canaanite gods. They did all of those things. And in so doing, they scattered the very flock of God. And we see the same thing in Jeremiah 10, 21, where it says what? It says, for the shepherds have become stupid and have, sought not the, have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock, again, is what? It's scattered. All right, now, how did the shepherds become stupid? Well, it's because they didn't seek the Lord. They went to bring the people into false religion, into idolatry, and they led them away from worshiping Yahweh alone. If you don't worship Yahweh alone, you're not going to get your crops. You're not going to be protected from the enemies of God. You're going to be what? You're going to be scattered. That was the problem with the wayward shepherds of Israel. And in Jesus' day, it was still prevalent. Why was Israel under Roman domination? Because of wicked shepherds. Why were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes blind to the Messiah when he came? Because they were wicked shepherds. So what we can see then is there's a need from the scriptures to be this good and magnificent shepherd that there's going to be one who will come and he will really care for the flock. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 20, verses 28 through 30. Bob has been teaching us through this. And I want you to see Paul the Apostle's words to the Ephesian elders and what they are to do in the church. Now, remember, the church is not Israel. There's a different responsibility. There's not a political entity and a military to form. But there are spiritual responsibilities for the shepherds of the flock. By the way, the idea of shepherd is what we really get the term pastor from. So whether you're an elder or a pastor, it's one and the same. You're a shepherd of the flock of God. Notice what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, verses 28 through 30. He said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Then he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The Apostle Paul warned that there would be false shepherds, that there would be savage wolves that would come in, the role of the shepherd is to protect the flock. And they were to do so in doctrine and deed. Again, leading the people into what the scriptures teach. That's the way to protect the flock. Dear ones, true shepherds protect the flock. Wayward shepherds, they pillage the flock. And so there was always a need all the way back from the Old Testament, all the way up until Jesus Christ comes on the scene of history, for there to be a good shepherd. And so the Messiah in the book of Isaiah is often depicted as this shepherd who would come and rule and reign as God ordained. Notice here in Isaiah chapter 10. Before I read this, by the way, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 10. Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 10. Please turn your Bibles there. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 10. I want you to see the expectation of this Messiah coming who would be the shepherd of Israel. Isaiah chapter 40, notice verse 9. It says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion. That's a reference to Israel. Bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem. Bearer of good news, lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Now, just stop there for a moment. What is the good news? 
They want good news to be proclaimed. The Lord wants this good news to be proclaimed. Well, notice what the good news is. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Does everyone see in verse 10 the phrase, with his arm ruling for him? Throughout the book of Isaiah, God's right arm is the arm of power. That he would come and he would finally deliver his people once and for all from their enemies. And so he would be the good shepherd that all the wayward shepherds had failed to be. And so the fullest expression of that phrase, the arm of Yahweh, is seen in the coming of the Messiah. How do we know that? Well, you don't have to turn to it, but Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed our message it begins with, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? What's the fullest expression of the strength of Yahweh, his right arm, strong to save? It's sending of the Messiah, the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is strong to save. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. And so that's why it says in Isaiah 40, 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ooze. Now, notice here, when it talks about the shepherd, some will say, well, that's just Yahweh. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh. Isn't Jesus the one who said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. That's the great shepherd who would come. And that's why Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Up until this point in history, Israel had not experienced that kind of shepherd. The shepherd would pillage the flock for their own lives, but they would never lay their lives down for the flock. That's how this good shepherd is ultimately going to care for the people of God. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. Brothers and sisters, the good shepherd came to lay his life down so that we all could have the ultimate healing, the forgiveness of sins, and the assurance of everlasting life. Today, if you're watching this online and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today should be your day to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. The bad news that's revealed in the Scriptures are very bad. It's very bad news. The bad news is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. We, as it says in Isaiah 53, we're all like sheep and we've gone astray. What does it mean to go astray? It means to sin. We've rebelled against God. And what's the wages of this rebellion? It's death. Not just a temporary death, but one day an eternal death in the lake of fire. I can't think of any worse news. But the good news of the gospel is that God would send forth his son. The son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time through the virgin birth, he humbled himself and became a man. Truly man. Remember, the shepherd was going to be a man appointed over them and truly God so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But this Jesus didn't simply live the perfect life on behalf of his people. He also died a substitutionary death. Jesus, the just, on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what that means is when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that we deserve to be punished with, and he paid it off. 
How could he pay it off? Well, because he was the sinless one. Now, the proof that Jesus accomplished these things was proven by the fact that after his bodily death, on the third day, he was bodily raised from the dead. That proves all of Jesus' claims. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. The same Jesus ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his sheep, but wrath and judgment upon the goats, those who don't belong to him. What must we do? Well, Jesus doesn't give a helpful hint or just a suggestion. He gives a command. Every single person is to repent and to believe the gospel. Why do we know that? Because the good shepherd said. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with the changing of our mind so that we turn in our life from idolatry, from sin, self, and the world. We turn from those things and we come to God on his terms, which is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you have not trusted in Jesus, today is your day. Trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have the forgiveness of sins and one day you'll be part of this great kingdom in which the good shepherd will rule. Okay, now, let's come to this harvest analogy that we have here in this passage today. We all witnessed Jesus calling his followers to beseech the Heavenly Father in prayer to send out workers into the harvest. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the harvest in context is not about the harvest of damnation, because that's taught about in the scriptures as well, but it's the harvest unto salvation. Why? Because it says Jesus had compassion on them. So what I want to show you is how God is likened to a master farmer who's going to have a glorious harvest of those who are brought into his kingdom. You might refer to them as the wheat. But there's also going to be a harvest of those who don't belong, namely the tares. And what I want to do is show you the imagery comes right from the Bible itself. Later on in Matthew 13, Jesus here is giving the parable of the sower. And remember, what Jesus would do is he would give a parable. He would explain it just plainly as a parable. But then he would pull his disciples aside and give them the interpretation of the parable. So they knew how to interpret it. Uh, Bob, some years ago, said, anytime Jesus gives you the interpretation of the parable, it's the right one. <laughs> well said. That is some of the best hermeneutic advice I'd ever heard, Bob. <laughs> well said. So we're going to get the real interpretation why Jesus is giving it to us. So listen to how he explains his own parable. It says this. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Now, first of all, I want you to notice here in blue that the one who is sowing the good seed is whom? It's the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself. That is a messianic title from Daniel 7. So Jesus could literally say the one who sows the good seed is the Messiah. Okay, it's synonymous. That's how they would have understood it. Direct reference to Daniel 7. He's the Messiah. So who is the sower? It's the Messiah. Now, what's the field? Well, notice he says the field is the world. And here, the world is probably referring to the whole inhabited world as far as populated by human beings. Wherever human beings are found, it's that idea. So that's the field. It's the world. Notice he says, and for the good seed... 
These are the sons of the kingdom. Now, here is something we may have to learn about because oftentimes we think of the seed as what? We think of it as the word of God, right? But Jesus here is saying that the seed is what? It's the sons and implied daughters of the kingdom. Now, don't mistake Jesus, of course. How did they become sons and daughters? By believing the word. Okay, so there's a relationship between the word and the sons and daughters of the kingdom, but technically the good seed are the sons and the daughters of the kingdom. That's the idea. Okay, now who are the tares? Well, the tares are the sons of the evil one. They belong to Satan. And so notice it says the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So the devil has his own harvest going. And the idea is that all of those who are regenerated by the Spirit, who believe the Word of God, they're going to be harvested by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to be harvested at the end of the eschatological age. And so the challenge for us this morning in the text we are reading is in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus wanted his followers to be cognizant that there really is a harvest in the world that you live. And see, this growth of this kingdom, it happens as you get about your daily lives, and it's happening, happening in almost an imperceptible way. That daily there are people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and you can't see their faith, and you can't see the regeneration, you can't see the crop grow, but yet it's really taking place. But one day when the Lord Jesus breaks through the clouds of heaven and he takes his church to be his own, then you're going to see it. That which is invisible is going to become visible. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to believe that. And so therefore, we are going to be those who pray for harvesters to go out, workers into God's harvest. And we want to be those who have ourselves the gospel upon our lips and the boldness in the heart so that we would also go out into the harvest. Now, this idea of becoming partakers and those who would work with Christ, as it were, as his under-shepherds to bring in God's harvest is a theme that we see all the way through Matthew. And I want you to see it very early on, Matthew four seventeen. It says, From the time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice initially in Matthew chapter 4, very early on, Jesus and it was John the Baptist were the only workers out in the harvest. So when Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers were few, he wasn't joshing us. There was only two at that time. And so he wanted to send out more. That's exactly the invitation and the command that he gives to all of his followers, everyone who believes. Matthew 4, 19, he said initially to his own disciples, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, the idea of being a fisher of men is the same as being a farmer who brings in the harvest. It's the same imagery. I mean, it's not the same. Otherwise, he'd say the same thing. But the point is, it means the same. The idea is that we would be about the gospel. That's the great mission that Jesus Christ gives us. Turn your Bibles, if you will. We'll leave you with this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I want to leave you with the words of the Great Commission. Because you may be thinking, what should I do when I go out the door? Well, here's your mission. Here's your mission. Do you know that we, as you're turning again to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the very end of Matthew, one of the exciting things about being a Christian is we never wake up. The moment we believe in Jesus Christ, from that point on, we never wake up to an alarm clock. We always wake up to a calling. 
We're never to be bored. Why? Because we always have a mission. We always are on the mission. Always. We're behind enemy lines during this time of trials and tribulations. And we're trying to get as many souls into the kingdom as possible. That's our mission. Notice what Jesus said. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me and heaven on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice, dear ones, when he says in verse 19 that we're to make disciples of all nations, that doesn't mean that you and I are to take over political entities or just vote in the right candidates, although that may be a smart thing to do to have a better life now. But this isn't about a better life now. This is about those who will have their sins forgiven and are going to have everlasting life and are going to be partakers of this glorious kingdom when Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And so making disciples of nations is not a dominion mandate as post-millennialists claim. Bob is going to be writing an article proving this, that all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, the Mathetes, the disciple, is not a political entity. It can't be a senate. It can't be a congress. It can't be a king. What the disciple is, is a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, you can be a king and be a believer in Jesus Christ. But the idea is not that we're to make political entities or take them over, but we are to make disciples by preaching the gospel. And by God's grace, he regenerates. By the Spirit, he brings them to faith, and they become part of the harvest. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who, as we go out the door, are going to be those who pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest. Let us be those who have the gospel upon our lips and the boldness in our heart so that we will give the gospel so that others may become partakers of this harvest. And brothers and sisters, they will come into contact and worship and serve forevermore the good shepherd. Brothers and sisters, as you go out the door today, again, you don't ever wake up merely to an alarm clock, but you wake up to this great and high calling. The good shepherd is currently hiring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you that you've harvested us, Lord, that you've allowed us to become workers that would have the gospel on our lips so that others may hear. I do pray that you would give us opportunity, especially over the holidays, with family, with friends, with coworkers that we may get together with, that you would give us opportunity, give us boldness, put the gospel upon our lips, allow us to be gentle and loving, and yet truthful and bold, all for the sake of your name, that people would come to faith in you and become partakers of this great harvest into your kingdom at the end of the age. And we thank you, Lord, that you use even us for these purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. I pulled a fast one on you. I got one on the screen. I changed it up. I got out of Jude 24 and 25. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, I thought it was appropriate. It says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless all of you. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving.